So the work I do with 1000 Black Girl Books is it's taking these stories, it's showing an opportunity to say, hey, we need to learn about and acknowledge these structures. We need to showcase people that have broken outside of these structures. And we need to remember that we made these structures. They are not innate to us. You're listening to the Meta Business Innovation and Technology Podcast. Conversations with industry leaders on new trends and products that can grow your business. Today, we bring you the second of three episodes featuring special guests of Fireside Conversations from a Meta event held on March 1st, celebrating International Women's Month. If you haven't heard of our first Fireside Chat yet, be sure to give that a listen after this episode. Today's conversation is hosted by Samantha Stetson, VP of Client Counsel and Industry Trade Relations here at Meta. She sits down with author, advocate, and executive producer Marley Diaz and a multidisciplinary artist, educator, and activist, Amanda Ping-Badabakia. Today, we're going to have a great conversation. I've got two incredible people here with me. I've got Marley Dias with us here, and I've also got Amanda Bodibakia. I got this, Pung Bodibakia. But I have to tell you, the best thing about Amanda <laughs> is that her actual Instagram handle is, I have a long last name, a long last name, a long last name which I love. I mean, very, very creative on that side of things. But both of these women have done so much to push beyond both the social and cultural boundaries that exist today. And they've created incredibly large-scale movements in the process and something they should be proud of and we have all benefited from in society. Amanda is a multidisciplinary artist, an educator, an activist. Her work examines the unseen labor of women amplifies AAPI narratives, and affirms the depth, resilience, and beauty of communities of color. It's been seen everywhere, from museum walls, to protests, to rallies, and even on the cover of Time magazine. That's remarkable. And then Marley is an author, an advocate, an executive producer, and at the age of 10, mind you, 10 years old, this one started hashtag a thousand black girl books. She drove to drive attention to the literatures that were featuring black female protagonists. The campaign actually went viral. And then Marley wrote her own book, Marley Dias Gets It Done. So I think we just have had two very young girls who get the job done. And I'm really, really inspired by both of them on that side of things. And then you became the youngest person ever on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. Truly a remarkable accomplishment and something you should be proud of. You since then hosted and executive produced Netflix's Bookmarks, Celebrating Black Voices, which features Black celebrities reading children's books from Black authors. So thank you both for being here. And now I'm going to take a seat to kind of dive into our conversation. So Amanda, I'd love to start with you today. I got to watch your TED Talk this morning, talking about really about design and science and how the two of them complement each other. And I thought you had such an interesting journey starting out as a neuroscientist and then kind of deciding to pursue the science, the art side of things so that you could communicate the benefits of science to society and how it kind of came to life through your art. You know, you use this and some of the foundation of this to create your 2021 public art exhibition called I Still Believe in This City. 
that you did in reaction to the horrific AAPI attacks that happened as a result of kind of the spread of COVID. You created a whole bunch of art. I think we're going to have some of it coming up here on the channels to see like brightly colored posters and murals featuring people from Asian and Pacific Island heritage that said, you know, this is our home too. I am not your scapegoat. I did not make you sick. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that project, what inspired you, how it all came to life, and how it took on and became a movement. So in 2020, as hate crimes were rising against Asian Americans, I was urgently called to act. And partnering with the New York City Commission on Human Rights, I created a public art campaign that boldly rebuked anti-Asian hate. And what this work really did was captured and expressed the anguish, defiance, and dismay of Asian Americans in New York City and around the country. And what these, you know, more than 500 pieces of art really did was to give passersby, to give viewers, to grant them a sense of safety, a sense of pride and belonging. And as you mentioned, my background is in neuroscience, and the research essentially backs up what we all know innately, that a sense of belonging is absolutely crucial for our mental and physical well-being. So what actually happens when we feel alone or when we're ostracized, when we are shunned, you know, when we are excluded, is that our brains react as if we had experienced bodily harm. So this is why so much of my work centers belonging, because fostering it is basic community care. And I've just been so proud and honored that the work has become a symbol for Asian American strength and resilience that we've seen you know, at rallies and protests, at vigils, at community centers. But I've also just been so moved that the work has become a symbol for solidarity and allyship as well. So if you see my art in a storefront, if you see it in someone's window, you know that it is a safe space, and that means the world to me. How many people have seen her art out and about in the city? Like almost half, more than half the room. That's phenomenal. I love that. That sense of belonging is so important. I think we all can think back and have stories when we felt where we belonged versus when we didn't belong and what a difference it makes. So there's a huge love that you're bringing that to life. All right, Marley, I want to come over to you a little bit. You like to also harness creativity, and you've really used media to, you know, forge different connections. And from a young age, like, you realized that when you were in middle school that all the books that you were reading represented white boys and dogs. Can and their dogs. It was Old Yeller, Where the Red Fern Grows, and the Shiloh series in one year. So that is giving us a pretty, pretty small pretty range. Pretty small window. Pretty Not exactly reflecting the world that you were living and you really couldn't see yourself in it. So you not decided, you know, you still read the books because you're an avid reader, but you decided to actually act and do something about it. And that is, I think, the most important thing is when people actually decide to take that action. And we have a room full of marketers and people who are in the agency world that have the opportunity to help tell stories and make changes. And so you saw what it was like to actually, you know, when you put people of representation in your work and that made it happen, what advice would you kind of tell them and what was your story and process of going through to make people be represented and what change came out of it as a result? Well, I think a really important part of community building, at least in my experience with 1000 Black Girl Books, is that we have to think about the sort of tension between structure and agency. 
So oftentimes when we consider or think about how black girls are portrayed in media, we are seen as aggressive, we are over-sexualized, we are adultified, and we face these challenges through the microaggressions that have been talked about like earlier in our conversations today and on larger scale effects, on a larger scale and in a structural way. But we don't think about the fact that these things are not necessarily choices. They're often a result of failures from our systems, from social services, from public institutions, private institutions, and in my case, particularly schools. So where Black girls in my class were not necessarily raising their hand to participate in math class, when they didn't want to be on the girls versus boys teams for gym, when they felt uncomfortable and didn't go to school and they have their period, we consider those moments of agency where you're making a choice to not do something, where you're making a choice to fall into the narrative of how Black girls exist and show up in the world. When in reality, we have to consider the structures that make them feel that way, that make them feel unsafe, and make them unable to communicate and understand the ways they're being invalidated in everyday life. So the work I do with 1,000 Black Girl Books is it's taking these stories, it's showing an opportunity to say, hey, we need to learn about and acknowledge these structures. We need to showcase people that have broken outside of these structures. And we need to remember that we made these structures. They are not innate to us. Racism we is not innate. Them. We can change them. <laughs> and it is not about individual choice. It is about people and communities coming together to tell those stories, to educate one another, and to want to make change on a structural level. So for me, at this stage of 1,000 Black Girl Books, where now we've collected 14,000 books and have been able to work as the ambassador for Read Across America for the past two years with the National Education Association, it is really important to stop the narrative of making change and justice seem like it is an individual action at all times, but to understand that we as a community have to make these conscious decisions to reimagine structures, to erase and abolish the things that are holding us back, and to recognize that all of our stories and our histories must be told in that process. We have to recognize those structures and change them, and we can all contribute to helping to do that, but you've done a phenomenal job. I think both of you, in your stories, you've built large communities, and at Meta, you know, our whole kind of mission is centered around building community and bringing people closer together around the world. And so when you think about how your communities have empowered you and supported you, can you talk a little bit about what that's meant and how you've used your communities? So I look at my work with communities as an exchange of gifts. So often in my work, I am asking for the gift of stories or participation so that folks might co-create with me. And, you know, I treat these gifts as sacred. They are pieces of our shared history and legacy that I just have the great privilege of bearing witness to. And... These gifts are given in spaces of care and unburdening. And from this incredible vulnerability, I just derive so much comfort and courage. Courage to speak boldly. Courage to do things differently, to embrace the multitudes inside of me. Because I know that my people have my back. And I just want to add that at every pivotal point in my life, there has been a woman who has fought for me, who has championed me, who has flung that door wide open so that I could walk through. And that just galvanizes me to, you know, create more portals and pathways to possibility for folks coming up with me and behind me. Well, that's so great. I mean, I loved in your TED Talk, you had that example too of the two people, the scientist who was drawing on the whiteboard 
and <laughs> that you're a designer and like you had to get them into the room with each other collaborating to get them to kind of come up with their end design and result. And it just, I love how you bring people together too, you know, like through your community and empower them to do their best work as well. I mean, really, we really don't do anything alone. Right? Yeah, it's everything. It's all collaboration. All right, Marley, your community. I think for is, me, my community is just people that believe in learning. I think yeah. we've seen in this country that now a lot of people just don't believe in it anymore. They're not curious. They don't have questions. They don't want to ask and they don't want to grow. And that's not anything I could, I can't do anything about that, but try to find the people that are still interested in understanding that they don't know everything. And that is, you know, I'm included in that journey and in that process. So oftentimes that comes up in the people that have been sort of shut out of access to information so much, which often is women and girls, black women and girls in particular, where we've been shut off and said that you cannot learn about these things. You do not have access to these rooms. You do not have a seat at the table. And that breeds curiosity so much more because you understand what you're being excluded from and you're interested in engaging with those things and giving back those lessons to the people around you. So that shows up in my mom. She's the dean at John Jay, so she might be out of the room on a call or something. She's been working so hard today. We came from D.C., ran, you know, ran everywhere to get here. But she's someone, when I told her that I didn't see myself reflected in books, she didn't have that experience. The first book she read until she was 13 years old was the Bible. So she had known that her story is not going to be everywhere and that she has to learn and find representation in books that often don't show herself. So she encouraged me and pushed me to do something about it, to start 1,000 Black Girl Books and to show other people that when these stories are not included, girls lose so much. So she's just a person that says, I don't know this experience. I don't share this experience. I might look like you, talk like you. I might be, you might be of me, but I still have so much more to learn from you when you're 10 years old, articulating a problem and a struggle you have. So people like that, adults in my life that, you know, didn't talk back or talk down to me when I was 10 years old saying, I'm sick and tired of reading about white boys and their dogs have been teachers, parents, and oftentimes people that look like me that have not had that access, that want to give and grant that access to other people. I mean, we were talking earlier today about curiosity and just how important it is and like how do we make sure that we're finding the people and seeking out the people that have that thirst for continuously learning and are constantly curious. And I think we all know in our jobs that every day we're learning something new. So you never stop learning, which is just great. I love hearing you reinforce that. And please, if you have any tips of how to inspire the young generation to keep wanting to learn, share them anytime. We will take them. The tips is to ask them questions. Show them that you want to learn from them. Like if the one thing my mom would always do in the car is like after school, she would say, if there's one thing you would change, what would that be? That was every day of elementary school, every single day. So by like second period, I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to tell my mom. I have to answer this question. Like I got to figure out what I'm going to do about something. And I think it's really important to encourage and say that you want kids to be conscious and critical observers. So similar to our previous speaker who was talking about princesses and Disney things, I could never watch like Jasmine or like Aladdin with my mom. Like she would just call out like, she did that's, you know, this is an example of how economic class impacts relationships and how this and this and this and the stratification of this results in that. And now I'm a sociology major. So it's like, it works. She totally indoctrinated me into observing these things. And it's important for adults to ask kids those questions and to see if they're noticing any patterns that you might not pick up. And by the way, Marley is at school right now in Boston at Harvard, and she has her midterms next week. So I like give her a ton for that. Well, I think in both your work, you know, we've seen that women really do have a powerful and starring role. And so I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into that and the notion of like why you see women, both of you, as key to societal change. 
Well, I think women. society would just break down without women. I think we can all. <laughs> we all know that. We can all, we can all agree there. We, we can uh, agree, yeah. But, you know, it's, we're the glue. We're the light. We are the beating heart of our communities. And we're often standing up, pointing out injustices, because we know, we live what it is like to be excluded, to be underestimated, to be disenfranchised. So it's not really a choice, you know, that we are the ones speaking out. And instead of sort of not doing anything, we are building these arbors of cooperation because we don't achieve anything alone. And we are seeding brighter futures because there is no other choice. And I depict this in my work because I have seen the wonder and the power of it. I love that. What'd you say? Arbors of connection. Cooperation. Cooperation. I love that. I was like, <laughs> wait, I just lost the word. It was amazing. How about you? Well, Marley? I feel simply put, like basically what you're saying is that women have, we literally brought life to everything that has ever existed in this world ever. <laughs> like, I don't really know what else there is to say that scientifically speaking, <laughs> scientifically. Like, it's not like a choice. And you're next to a scientist, like, yes. Good, bad, the good, the bad, the ugly has been brought to life through a woman. And it's really important that we support women so that they can raise children that don't produce that evil and don't produce that ugly anymore. So why don't we invest in the people that really have, and I have no Power choice to but to that. make a conscious decision about how they raise their kids. And it is the structure, it's the structure and agency thing again, where if we support these exactly. moms and we give them the resources they need, we allow them to get paid leave, to take time off of work, to do what they need to do, to engage and be in and out of these, like any position they need to be in and get those supports, we can create kids that love one another, that communicate, that cooperate, that give back, that are engaged because their mothers gave them an example of that and they had supports that allowed them to do that like what Nicola talked about at the beginning, the ebbs and flows. And it's like, it's not only for your own, it's to create stronger children. I love, it's so great. So I think, you know, I want to make sure like we end here like thinking much about kind of like the future and that there has to be some optimism for our world. So like what gets both of you totally excited about what's to come? Like where is your optimism like inside of you each right now? I mean, right now, honestly, I'm inspired by the young people. <laughs> I'm, after today, I'm, yeah. 100%. But I also come back to art, actually, because I think art is such a powerful force for social change. And I think of it as the kindling that, you know, feeds the fire of activism. Because art is something that allows us to see each other honestly. It allows us to imagine the most beautiful futures and tackle our world's most challenging problems. Because ultimately what we do want is to build a better world. And, you know, it really takes all of us raising our voices, drawing people in, rallying people to a shared future that we can't yet see. And I think everyone in this room has an artist locked inside them just waiting to be unleashed. And I think that art is our most powerful tool for progress because it's an act of love. Because when we love, we care. And when we care, we fight. I 100% agree. I think, I think art gives me that, that hopefulness. And I feel like books are often excluded from what we think of as these beautiful stories. But the work I do has been, it's wanting to have Black art in classrooms. It's mm-hmm. wanting to have Black art viewed at the same level of regular art or other art. And I just feel very hopeful for the fact that people keep creating, they keep bringing more things into the world, that there is so much more that we're exploring and learning every single day. And it's really a matter of making sure that people can do those things equitably, that everyone gets the opportunity to create, that everyone has the opportunity to tell their story. And my work is, I guess, to try to even those things out, to try to make sure that everyone has that access. But having art at the table and 
storytelling at the forefront has just made my life so beautiful and I felt so inspired by it. And I hope that what I've done feels artistic in one way or another to the people that, you know, enjoy my work and get to read those books. We hope you enjoy this episode celebrating International Women's Month, the second of three Fireside Chats. We'd like to thank Samantha for hosting this conversation and a special thank you to Marley Diaz and Amanda Ping Badabakia for sharing their time and insights with us. You can find links to any resources mentioned in today's show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening to the Meta Business Innovation and Technology Podcast.